This is the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a California perspective for a global audience featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 17, Episode 6, Oaksterdam University, America's Cannabis College, talking with Dale Sky Jones, Executive Chancellor, President and CEO of Oaksterdam University. Our guest today is Dale Sky Jones, who's been working on cannabis policy reform for over 15 years. She joins us today from her office in Oakland, California. Hi, Dale, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Dale, please take a moment and tell our listeners about your biography and also tell us about Oaksterdam University. Certainly. Well, I first entered working with doctors and patients in 2007 down in Orange County. I moved to California specifically to do this work against my better judgment uh, out of corporate America and uh, kept it pretty quiet at first because I thought, well, gosh, what if I have to go back to my real job someday? I very quickly fell in love with the problem of what was really going on, and that was helping people figure out how to utilize medical cannabis And my primary role in my previous jobs and work was largely training people, adult learning, and helping folks be the best them that they could possibly be in whatever role we hired them into and then developed them towards in their professional career. So workforce development, professional development had already been in my wheelhouse, but working in restaurants, hotels, the hospitality industry, as well as the supply chain, and touching in retail as well as the medical industry. Mm -hmm. So everything that I had done in my previous career led me towards this moment. And the first thing I looked for was education. And there was none. There was none. One place that offered education was called Oaksterdam. And the patient ID center that had really started it all is where the roots of Oaksterdam began 27 years ago in the fight that went all the way to the Supreme Court for the right to supply medical cannabis to necessity patients. Back in the 90s, we're talking about the AIDS and cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And these are similar to the patients that I was trying to serve in Orange County. And at the same time that I went looking for any type of education for my doctors, what their rules were, how they should interact with patients, and realizing that some of the things that they might say to a patient could be considered a crime. That if you help a patient find their medicine, that you are aiding and abetting a felony. Mm. And if you actually provide it or are taking money from someone who does, that that could be considered collusion and you will lose your license to practice medicine as well. And so making sure that the doctors were engaging professionally and accurately and that the patients were finding outside information that could be trusted that the doctors were disallowed from providing. And I went on to find... Oaksterdam being formed. I was a fly on the wall as the school was being formed to try to answer the needs of patients who are saying, I need to figure out how to grow my own medicine, how to transport it safely, and how to have successful law enforcement encounters while I'm doing it. And so they kept asking a man named Richard Lee, who had taken over the the local business license for the dispensary after Jeff Jones was stopped by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Oakland Cannabis Buyers Club was firmly in a federal case. And Richard said, well, 
you know, I'll teach you how to grow this medicine. I'll teach you how to transport it. I'll teach you how to get into business. But I need you to show up to city council and advocate for our right to legally do so. Mm -hmm. And so that's how our school got started was we'll teach you how to grow. But first, we're going to teach you politics, policy and history, how we got here, legal versus state law, what to happen, what's going to happen, depending on which badge pulls you over and how to behave in those situations so that you're most likely to go home that night to your family. Uh, It quickly became, uh, oh, gosh, we should also tell you what to say when you show up to city council and Mm -hmm. how to advocate. And so that's how our advocacy class was born. Since then, we paid for the first legalization campaign taken before the voters in 35 years, Prop 19, back in 2010. Mm -hmm. I became the first spokeswoman for this voter initiative. And we took it all the way to the end. It was the election heard around the world. Mm -hmm. And while we failed at winning that particular election for adult use legalization, we not only sparked the conversation worldwide, but we also forced our then Governor Schwarzenegger to sign the most powerful and impactful decriminalization bill that he had vetoed four times leading up to that point Hmm. that resulted in an 87% reduction in arrests and jailing of Californians for simple possession after that. So that's nine out of 10 people not going to jail for cannabis here in California because of that campaign. Very impressive and very entrepreneurial. And obviously your your corporate background. Thursday, President Biden announced a blanket pardon for Americans federally convicted of possessing small amounts of marijuana. He went on to urge all 50 governors to do the same on state offenses. And he called for a review on whether cannabis should be listed as a less serious drug. Are we at a historic turning point in the legalization of cannabis in the United States? Without question, we are at a turning point, and it's long overdue. Uh, We have been in an amped-up drug war for 50 years, uh, over 50 years. Nixon doubled down purely for political reasons, certainly not scientific. But we've really been in a failure for 100 years. Uh, And we're just starting to acknowledge it. Long overdue. I do believe that President Biden, I appreciate that he's sticking to his campaign promises within the first two years. I also feel as though we owe a nod to Brittany Griner, who is still a prisoner of war, in my humble opinion, in Russia over this issue. And Biden was at risk of being a hypocrite, demanding that Putin release Brittany Griner for simple possession Mm -hmm. when we still hold so many Americans in prison and in jail for this same thing. Mm. So Biden needed to get his story straight and make sure that he was doing what he was asking other world leaders to do. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to acknowledge and remind people that Brittany Griner is still in this situation. And so are a lot of Americans here in the United States in terrible condition. And to pretend that that wouldn't have happened to a black woman here in America and already hasn't is hypocrite. It's hypocritical at its finest. Um, and at its worst, it's, it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. So long overdue, 
<laughs> as an important step. Very but definitely. But we're not, we're not there yet. Yeah, we now, still have more. Now, 37 states so far have legalized medical marijuana, and 19 states have approved marijuana for recreational use. Together, all those states represent about 40% of the U.S. population. And in a Gallup poll that was taken last year in 2021, 68% of Americans said that they were in favor of legalization. So where do we stand at this point on the state level with regard to medical marijuana and recreational use? Because it seems as though with each election cycle, there are more and more states that are permitting both medical use and recreational use. So first and foremost, we still need to get over the stigma and the fear. And more and more as states are coming online and folks are realizing that DUI deaths are down, that even uh, opiate overdose deaths, uh, especially among young men, are down, that having a safer alternative to alcohol and other drugs, having a harm reduction technique where people can exit from other addiction, whether it be opiates or alcohol or cigarettes or methamphetamines with a substance that will not kill them and will also help in some cases alleviate, reduce, and sometimes even eliminate the withdrawal effects from those drugs. But what's frightening soccer moms in Kansas is when we use words like recreational because it makes it sound fun for kids. Mm -hmm. And it's as equivalent as putting a cartoon character on that cannabis packaging uh, to say, hey, this is fun, come try it. So just words um, and how we approach different contingencies, how we talk to mothers against drunk driving to say, this is not recreational. This is either medical or for adult use. And here's how we are going to control, tax, and regulate cannabis because it's already being bought and sold in your neighborhood. The question is by whom? Are the profits going to buy guns or advertising that we can control? And are those tax dollars being reinvested into our communities and our schools, or at least our general funds, in order to continue to regulate these industries? I think that America has acknowledged that this is a failure and it's taken a long time to get there. But we're also recognizing, I'm gonna go back to hypocrisy again, that we still have Americans in prison for this while other Americans are engaging in business. And the business that we are engaging in is inequitable so long as safe banking and fair taxation are absent. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about the business side of this because I understand the cannabis industry here in the United States is a $33 billion a year business. That's billion with a B. And by the same token, for instance, here in California, Recreational use is legal. Medical use is legal. There are dispensaries throughout California. However, when it actually comes to, but it's a cash business, it's next to impossible for these legally established dispensaries in California, for instance, to open a bank account, to accept credit cards. Talk to me about the business aspect, the practical aspects of a, a Californian or uh, another American citizen in a, in a state where, where this is legal. Talk to me about the practical business aspects that just that's, haven't seemed to catch up yet with the fact that recreational use 
and medical use is now legal. Jim, you know, I joke in my classroom that if you keep saying recreational, I'm going to wash your mouth out. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, put, I'm putting a quarter. I'm putting a quarter in my swear jar. <laughs> so I, I'm right. banishing that word from my vocabulary. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll good, say good adult man. use. <laughs> adult use. Yes, sir. Uh, or just responsible use, even. Um, so thank you. Now, the, you, let me tie these two things together because. It's, it's really one word that we're talking about, and this is descheduling. Mm -hmm. And it's a tricky conversation because folks all the time are talking about rescheduling. Well, what am I saying schedule? Well, the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 created a schedule of drugs, and marijuana was temporarily placed on Schedule 1, which mm -hmm. means it has no medicinal value, is highly addictive, and definitely dangerous. Now, fentanyl is not even as highly scheduled hmm. as cannabis, all right? So something that is deadly, that is killing hundreds and thousands of people uh, is, is not as highly scheduled as cannabis. So clearly we needed to review this and we have several times over the decades and each time the DEA comes back and says, I'm sorry, we've reviewed the record and we believe that cannabis firmly belongs in schedule one. And as long as it is in schedule one, there are a slew of other laws, especially since we've really engaged in the drug war, that are very specific to drug laws. Mm -hmm. And 280E is one of the rules that came out of the drug war. Uh, it was Nancy Reagan that recognized a drug dealer on the East Coast. This was actually not about cannabis, but he was paying his taxes. It's one thing we mentioned that Al Capone was not taken down for all the terrible things he did. He was taken down for tax evasion. And no matter how you make your money, you have to pay your taxes, rule number one. Mm -hmm. And so this gentleman was paying his taxes and he was taking normal tax deductions. And so the IRS enacted what's called the 280E rule to say, oh, hell no, you do not get to take normal business deductions if you are engaging in breaking a, the Schedule One. Uh, or these these drug laws. Mm -hmm. And so no business is allowed to take normal business deductions. I, I have challenged people for 15 years to find me another industry that is not allowed to deduct normal business expenses. We're talking about an effective tax rate over 70% on these otherwise legally operating businesses. Mm -hmm. There's only one thing that you're allowed to deduct, and that's the cost of goods sold. So we're going to go back to irony and ridiculousness and say the only thing you're allowed to deduct is the cost of the cannabis and nothing else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the 280E rule does not apply if cannabis is not Schedule 1. Mm -hmm. So that's first argument for descheduling. The second argument for descheduling really has to do with safe banking. Now, it's not that banks can't participate. They can. They're allowed to do business with cannabis industry so long as they know their customer's customer. They have to know that it's not a violent drug cartel that is laundering money through this business, mm -hmm. that it's your Aunt Betty pulling that, that $50 out of her purse. Mm -hmm. And so the safe banking, because the FDIC and, and several law enforcement and honestly prohibitionists uh, have scared the hell out of the banking industry. And so banking does happen, but it happens selectively, which really means MSOs can quietly bank while people of color and women and businesses in poor communities 
are chronically underbanked and underfunded as well. The third thing with descheduling that I have to mention is that research will be made legal. And for the folks that say there's not enough research, there's more research on cannabis, endocannabinoids, THC, CBD than on the atom, than on many drugs we commonly consume. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of research, but let's do more. And let's actually look for drug interactions and look for the benefits, not just the harms and how to medicalize cannabis. But we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And we need to take the teeth out of the criminality of choosing cannabis, either for medical or business purposes, so that we're not selectively prosecuted and that we're not just enabling monopolies so that the only people that can make money on this are the already wealthy and the rest of us either work for them or we stay outlaws. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a way to support small business in America. And the way to do that is also to deschedule. Now, is the Biden administration setting in motion the descheduling process? Uh, I imagine this is this is something that is that falls within the executive power of the presidency and does not require an act of Congress. Is that correct, Dale? Ideally, it is an act of Congress. Congress put cannabis on the schedule mm. and they can demand a a revision uh, of the entire process. I think we could argue that the entire war on drugs has failed and so has DEA scheduling and oversight. Uh, if you just look at the fentanyl and opiate crisis, uh, we let the drug dealers run rampant and make billions of dollars in this country with a drug that killed a lot of folks. I think that Biden has finally set the tone to encourage descheduling, but he could also be encouraging rescheduling. And that is a different creature. And I think my biggest concern is that we move into what I refer to as a softer, gentler prohibition, where we're not cracking skulls and putting people in prison for 20 years. Mm -hmm. But if you follow the money, we still have a lot of senators, a lot of leaders, a lot of what I call prohibitionists, that they want to ensure that you still have to go through the criminal justice system. But now you're going to be diverted after you're drug tested into a treatment program. And we're just going to put your heads into different beds. And instead of filling up the private, the private prison industrial complex, we're filling up treatment beds. And the tragedy there is we're filling it with people that are required to go, required to pay for their stay. And now there's not enough room for the folks that desperately need those services because we're filling those beds with, with folks that don't actually even feel like they have a problem utilizing cannabis. It just has to do with the laws in their neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. So do you see, do you see the Congress taking action on this? I see Congress making motions. And I think that we are about to reach critical mass. What the president can do, what the president will do <laughs> is urge others to do it. Uh, he can use his presidential powers for pardons, but that's backwards facing. That's not future facing. Mm -hmm. And so we really do need a multi-agency approach with the will of Congress, because as long as they hold the purse strings, which is their job, and we, we look at appropriations, we look at budgets, you know, you tell me your priorities, show me your budget and I'll tell you what's important to you. 
And what we do with that money and how we apply it towards enforcement versus research, how we open up interstate commerce, and how our federal government protects our local businesses here in America so that they can compete with Colombia, who kicks our butt at cut flowers and produce right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's also about making sure that our trade laws, that our approach across the board uh, is, is handled. And so that is going to take an approach that involves multi-agencies. I do worry for rescheduling. I believe we need full descheduling and cannabis should be treated more akin to alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. I think that if it is growing in the dirt, that the Department of Ag should have a say in it. Mm -hmm. If we are manufacturing it, that the Department of Health should have a say in it. But we really have to start treating cannabis as a commodity, along with hemp, versus contraband, depending on which county or neck of the woods that you're in. Mm -hmm. Now, I do recognize as far as sales, as far as the types of establishments that are allowed to exist in a particular locality, that that often is up to that locality, whether that is by state or by county, uh, is up to that state. I think we're looking at a similar exit as we did from alcohol prohibition. It's going to be state by state, but we have to have the support of the federal government or we're going to continue to have massive inequities and tragedies happening where we're still ripping babes from their mother's breast while the next guy next door is making millions off doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Let's just come back to the fact that to that Gallup poll last year, 68% of Americans are in favor of legalization. And again, Mm -hmm. Congress does the, does support and opposition for descheduling break down strictly on party lines or, or is it more reflective of the fact that 68% of Americans are in favor of legalization? You know, Jim, there's an even more recent Pew poll that I saw come out recently that was touting 91% really? that these are ridiculous laws. I have found that cannabis policy reform is one place Americans can agree regardless of which camp they're from. Mm-hmm. I can make an argument to you over fiscal responsibility, social responsibility, you like it or you hate it. I can tie cannabis policy reform to whatever is in the top 10 priorities in your life. Do you care about schools and budgets? Then let's talk about where this money is going and the school to prison pipeline. Let's talk about the things that matter most to you if you are a Christian conservative, that if you are pro-life, that being pro-cannabis matches your religious and conservative views. Mm. And if you are a tree-hugging, crystal-gripping, pot-smoking hippie from San Francisco, (laughs) brother, I got you. We have freedom. And cannabis is about freedom, right? It's our freedom of choice. It's our freedom for what we consume into our bodies, that this is not a crime against others. This is not a violent crime. And when we really unpack how we got here, especially in light of our current ecosystem where, you know, folks just don't trust each other anymore. The news is fake and the books are cooked and the research is concocted. That what we can get back to is our story of how cannabis affected our life. Did it help ease a loved one's transition Mm -hmm. through cancer? Did it help ease their death with dignity? Mm -hmm. Did it help you get through your own medical condition or just the stress of your reality, and did it hurt you? I think a lot of folks 
confuse the marketing of the 80s and 90s, which, look, I was a dare kid. Very effective. Crack, sizzle, pristine egg into a frying pan. Here's your brain. Here's your brain on drugs. Uh-huh. It, we were all convinced that cannabis was the gateway. And when you really unpack where these laws come from and how they got started, you realize that it, was, it wasn't a big, giant conspiracy. It was a hundred little ones <laughs> that all competed with cannabis on one level or another. And when you look to our own law here in America, when we passed the 13th Amendment, we said we are no longer going to enslave people as a rule here in America, with one exception. And that exception is if you are convicted of a crime, Jim. Mm-hmm. So we just simply went out and made being poor, being black, being brown, being different, a crime. And now we enslave a quarter of our black men. We enslave a quarter of the world's population in our prisons here in the U.S. And we failed. We mm-hmm. failed our kids and we failed our communities. It, it's The experiment has failed. This is the longest running war. And we're hoping that education is what helps people climb out of it, is once they understand how we got here, that they understand that there's also a path out of it and that it makes sense. Cats will not sleep with dogs and the sky will not fall. In fact, things get a little bit better with cannabis. It's not the panacea. It just makes things a little bit better. That's... <laughs> the most dangerous part has been getting caught with it. Yes. And and who can't agree with that? Speaking of education, let's let's come back to Oaksterdam University and the curriculum at Oaksterdam University, because you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. It is all about education. Tell us about the tell us about the syllabus. Tell us about the the program that you offer there, because you're certainly a very articulate spokeswoman for both for the cannabis reform movement and for the Oaksterdam University. So tell us a little bit more about the the syllabus itself. Well, in those last 15 years, we have definitely evolved several times over, and we've now had over 80,000 graduate from 110 countries really? around the world. True story. And we train a lot of different types of folks. So we certainly have the professionals, the C-suite executives and CPAs, attorneys, those who are trying to service the cannabis industry and try to understand, you know, what is this anyway and what are those pain points? We've got the employers and the workforce who are trying to figure out how to start their business, uh, how to, you know, find their place in the industry, find their passion, what they're good at and what the industry needs in that moment. Uh, because sometimes it's also about timing and location, as as most folks know, um, of, of where you start and how you start. So the academics that we have, uh, we've got three key certification programs, the business of cannabis. Mm-hmm. We also, of course, are a world famous horticulture college. And the third is an extractions and manufacturing program. We also recently launched a bud tending uh, certification program for those that are looking for the entry-level positions, uh, but really want to focus on the professionalism. Although I will say that sometimes consumers take that class to make sure that they're the best buyers. Uh, Caveat and tour. We're working on a book uh, for bud tenders and consumers as we speak. Um, But some of our students are regulators. We train uh, professional development with different cities. And what I've been personally spending most of my time on are social equity 
technical assistance contracts. We are blessed to work with the great city of Los Angeles, as well as the city of Oakland, the city of Palm Springs, uh, formerly the city and county of San Francisco. We finished that contract. I'm hoping for another one. And we were recently awarded the county of Monterey, as well as the great state of Connecticut. Hmm. And so we are doing uh, for Connecticut, we're building a brand new, never before seen uh, accelerator program for social equity applicants to enroll. They get the full business of cannabis programming, as well as with our partners, ArcView. They'll be pitch ready by the time they're done with their accelerator, and we'll have the opportunity to introduce them to investors, which I don't believe has happened in any program thus far. Mm -hmm. For the city of LA, we're building a trailblazing apprenticeship program. So a lot of what's happening right now, whether it be workforce development, professional development, business development, one-to-one coaching programs that take it out of the classroom into your specific strategies and issues and helping you solve those problems. We're making it up as we go along. And a lot of these programs, as we've always done, have never been done before. We are inventing uh, new ways to meet people where they are and help get them to where they want to be. Very impressive. Dale, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners? And how can our listeners follow both you and Oaksterdam University? Well, I would encourage anyone in the sound of my voice to check out OaksterdamUniversity.com because we also have free programs such as the exit from opiates and pain through cannabis, as well as advocacy for the cannabis industry. And just start to tiptoe into your own experiences and start to learn about what this is and why you should care. It's also important, of course, to get out and vote and show up to jury duty because these are the ways that we are changing the world, one voting booth and jury box at a time. And I found the power in a person, in our students, in our alum, in our friends and family, and just going out and telling our story and having the conversation and leaning into the awkward. And I would really hope that folks find us at OaksterdamUniversity.com. I am on Twitter and Instagram, Dale Sky Jones. And of course, you can also find at Oaksterdam on Twitter and at Oaksterdam University everywhere else. So it's easy to find us. Uh, we're rather easy to get a hold of. And if you're trying to figure out how to move policy in your neck of the woods, mm-hmm. how to simply understand Uh, how to consume cannabis safely, or how to have a conversation with your team about responsibility. Uh, There are pathways to that learning, and I would encourage anyone to come check us out. Well, Dale, thank you so much for joining us today and for for educating us all on this, uh, this important area, cannabis reform policy. And once again, President Biden's action last Thursday hopefully is that pivot point that we've been waiting so long for. Once again, Dale, thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to having you back again real soon. Thank you so much, Jim. And yes, we must use every opportunity as a forward catalyst. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 330 as we continue to mark our second anniversary. With listeners in 65 countries, the San Francisco experience is carried on 19 platforms, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Pandora, among others. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco. 